In Revelation 21, an angel came to John and said, Come, and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And then the angel took him to a great and high mountain, and he saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Well, the angel said, I'm showing you the bride. But then John saw a city. Why would a city represent a bride? Find out on this episode of Discover Your Spiritual Identity. It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. The book of Revelation is full of dark events, ominous things that are coming on the planet, but it builds to this fantastic peak, this spectacular ending where John sees the bride, the lamb's wife. Let's go to Revelation 21. That's when an angel came to him and said, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. That's what I hope to do for you on this program, on this episode. I want you to see the bride. I want you to see the lamb's wife. Then the angel carried the apostle away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. That mountain, I believe, is Mount Zion, which depicts the high place of worship and oneness with God that finally we're going to reach in eternity. And then the angel showed John that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Remember, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and he ascended to heaven. Well, when the thing climaxes, a city is going to descend. Now, why would a city be called the bride, the lamb's wife? Because it's not a city that God's marrying eternally in a covenant relationship. It's the inhabitants of that city. But many different aspects, many different details of the city are symbolically and prophetically representative of different aspects of the bride of Christ, the lamb's wife. Let me start with three questions, and then I'll answer them one by one. First of all, if Jesus is the Lamb of God, and he certainly is, that's how John introduced him to the world, and the Lamb's wife is how we will be introduced to heaven. John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? So if Jesus is the Lamb of God, wouldn't it be necessary for the Lamb's wife to have a similar nature? Because in this world where you have male and female mating together and becoming one, it only works when they're of the same species. Elephants mate with elephants, gorillas mate with gorillas, mice mate with other mice, right? And so the lamb of God is only going to mate, so to speak, supernaturally and spiritually with a wife, the bride of Christ, who has lamb-like attributes. Now, that's something we need to set our mind on for a few moments. Well, what are the major 
features of the personality of a lamb. Number one, meekness. Haven't you heard the term? That person's as meek as a lamb. It's a very subdued and quiet and calm personality that a lamb has. In the Bible, we find exhortations to meekness. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, which is very strange. People in this world think that they can inherit the earth by violence, by warfare. But kingdoms that are built by war never last. They eventually crumble. And so God is showing that there's a better way. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. It takes more strength to be a meek person than to be a harsh and violent person. That's weakly submitting to the lower nature. How could you sum up what meekness is? Meekness is an attribute that makes you quick to surrender to God and quick to forgive others. You just have a tender and submissive spirit. And that's the second attribute of a lamb. Lambs are submissive creatures. And didn't the Bible say, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you? Strangely, the way you conquer an arch enemy is by yielding to the greatest friends you have. Submit yourself unto God. That's meekness, a submissiveness of nature. And then also sheep, and of course lambs are baby sheep. And sheep have an inability to retaliate. It's just not in their nature. If you kick a lamb, it won't hiss at you. It won't try to claw you or butt you like a goat will. Uh, It'll just roll over and let you hit it again. Of course, I'm not advocating that, but it has an inability to retaliate. And didn't Jesus demonstrate that when he went to the cross? He could have called on legions of angels. Instead, he took the horrible treatment that was sent his direction, and he responded with love. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, if we're going to fulfill the calling to be the Lamb's wife, We need to be of the same kind of mindset, not only in how we act, but how we react to the negativity we receive in this world. So what is the lamb's wife going to be like? She's going to be meek. She's going to be submissive. And she's going to have an inability to retaliate to the world that hates us because it hated him. And so just like he loved the world back, we've got to love the world, even those who mistreat us, even those who mock what we believe in. I don't see a lot of that. (laughs) I certainly don't see a lot of that on Facebook. Uh, I see a lot of lambasting going on of those that mock Christianity. But why don't we return love for hate and pray for those who respond to us so negatively and will prove that we have the Lamb's nature. So that's question number one. If Jesus is the Lamb of God, wouldn't it be necessary for his wife to have a Lamb nature? We've answered that in the affirmative. Number two, question number two, why does the Bible speak of God 
having a wife, that we've been married to him who has risen from the dead. Why would God want a wife? And what does that symbolize? What does that represent? Two major things. First of all, listen to this. God is love, but for love to be manifested, it has to have an object. There has to be something to love. And God could claim being love, uh, and yet it's not really known or revealed or manifested until it's bestowed on those that he pours out his love on in order to show his feelings toward them. That's a fruit of the Spirit. It's an attribute of the Holy Spirit. But again, it's just hidden and unmanifested until there's an object of love. And that's what the bride of Christ is partially fulfilling. We're not just existent because of God wanting to express his love toward us, but so that we can in turn express that love back to him so that we can have a love relationship. There was a love relationship within the Godhead prior to the creation coming forth, which is an amazing mystery, a really deep mystery. But in John chapter 15, verse 9, listen to what Jesus says. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. And so he's indicating that there's a love relationship between the Father and the Son, and that he, the Son of God, has extended the same level, the same depth of love toward us. Now, let's go to John chapter 17, and let me read verses 23 through 26, saturated with love revelation. Jesus talks about how uh, he would pray that he could dwell within his people. He said, I and them and you and me. He's talking to the Father, and he says, I will be in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And so you and I, if we're born again, blood-washed children of God, are just as beloved of the Father as Jesus, the firstborn Son. And then he said, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. Listen now. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Isn't that amazing? So there's this incredibly deep love in the Godhead from the Father to the Son, from the Son to the Father. He says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. So this is like a circle of love. That's why he's created a bride, so that love could be demonstrated and revealed, received and completed, because it has to have an object for love to be completed. In fact, I like that word complete. Because the other reason God wants an eternal wife is for the sake of completion. Prior to the creation of Eve, Adam was incomplete. 
I heard one preacher say, after God created Eve, though Adam was finished, (laughs) uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek, and my wife is kind of halfway laughing on the other side of the camera. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, it talks about the body of Christ being the fullness of him who fills all things, who fills all in all. The fullness of him. Another translation of that same passage says we are the completion of him who himself completes all things everywhere. Isn't that an interesting thought? You are complete in him. That's easy to comprehend that I'm incomplete without God. But God, by his own choosing, he didn't have to do this, but by his own choosing is incomplete without his eternal bride. And just like Adam and Eve completed each other, the bridegroom and the bride, the lamb's wife, complete each other in an eternal union that is sacred and glorious and indescribably beautiful. Number three, the third question I have to ask you, if the bride, the lamb's wife, is represented by the eternal holy city, New Jerusalem, are the details of of the description of the city significant? And if they are, do they give us prophetic insights into the nature of the bride? Absolutely, yes. I believe God speaks in symbols and metaphors and similes. God is very poetical in the way he says things, and he loves to symbolically represent things. That's just the way the mind of God works. When he came to earth in the human body, he spoke in parables. And the word parable means to throw alongside. It means that the story being told with all of its symbols is thrown alongside a very literal truth in order to illustrate that truth with beauty, with poetical beauty. And so God did that in Revelation 21. When John saw this city coming down from God out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, there were certain aspects of it that I believe symbolically speak of the bride, because the bride and the city are one. Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. And then in Hebrews 11, it says that All of his offspring and all of those heroes of Hebrews 11 were looking for a city and that God is not ashamed to be called their God for. He has prepared for them a city, but he's also prepared them for that city. It's a dual preparation. But anyway, what are the dimensions of the city? It's a cube, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. It's a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was 30 by 30 by 30 feet. Uh, And so I believe the Holy of Holies represents, and I'm talking about the innermost uh, chamber of the tabernacle of Moses and the innermost chamber of the temple of God, being of equal dimension speaks of the perfection of relationship when you've gone through all the steps necessary to go past the veil into the Holy of Holies, where the glory of God is, it's utter perfection. No wonder the dimensions are the same any direction, up, down, or to the side. I believe that's represented there. And then the Bible said the city had a light like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear 
as crystal. Let's focus on the fact that the city is clear as crystal. You can see right through the city because there's no hidden agendas. There's no hidden compromise. There's no hidden attitudes that are dark or sinister or wrong or rebellious. All those who are part of the city are crystal clear in their sincerity and their purity of, of desire for God and their purity in their relationship with God. No inclusions, no uh, nothing that would reduce the value of the person. Perfect forever and perfectly sincere and clean and pure forever. Also, there are 12 gates to the city, and every one of those gates looks like a pearl. And then every three gates is surrounded by another pearl, it, it seems. Uh, the, the wording in the King James seems to convey the idea that each individual gate is a pearl, and then every several gate is one pearl too, which is, a, to me, symbolic of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but these three are one God. But also the fact that the gates are made of pearl is very revelatory because a pearl is a gem that is formed through suffering. One of two things enters into the folds of an oyster's flesh, either a grain of sand or a parasite, and the oyster will try to open and shut, open and shut to rid itself of this uninvited guest and Unable to do so, it will do the next best thing, and that's to secrete a milky white substance called nacre, and it will coat that grain of sand or coat that, uh, that parasite over and over hundreds, hundreds, and maybe even thousands of times with that mother-of-pearl secretion until something painful becomes something beautiful and something that was... Uh, seemingly had no value becomes something of great worth. And so it is for the people of God, the bride of Christ. We have passed through things that seem worthless and painful and ugly, and we would rid ourselves of it if we could. But since we have not been able to completely rid ourselves of the lower nature, we've learned how to subdue the lower nature by secreting a milky white substance out of our hearts, the milk of the word of God, and coating our rough-edged trials and tribulations and demonic intrusions into our life, attacks from the satanic world. We coat it over with the word of God. We say, it is written, it is written. I've done that hundreds of times, thousands of times, tens of thousands of times. And in the process, something painful, this earthly sojourn, becomes something beautiful, preparation for eternity as part of the bride. No wonder the gates of heaven are represented as pearls. What else about the city is significant? The city appears as pure gold. Pure gold. What does gold represent? The divine nature. Being one of the most precious metals there is, and requiring something called a refining process, it speaks of what you and I are going through. See, we're going to come forth as gold. Job 23 verse 10 uh, quotes that great patriarch as saying, when he has tried me, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. In other words, I'm going to be more like him. 
I'm going to be purged of carnal attitudes. I'm going to be more godlike in my nature, more loving, more forgiving, more kind, more good. I shall come forth as gold. And Peter talked about it too in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. He talked about the trials we go through. And he said that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So a golden city speaks of a bride who has been through the fire, but has purged us of all of the dross, has purged us of the uh, foreign alloys. That's what actually is purged from gold when it goes through the refining process. And there's a lot of foreign alloys in us in a spiritual sense that need to be purged. And then the Bible said there's a wall around that city, great and high, and the wall is made of jasper stone. Think of this, Revelation 21, verses 17 and 18. Then he measured the wall, and it was 144 cubits, which is about 216 feet, according to the measure of a man, that is the angel, and the construction of this wall was of jasper. Now, I see something really beautiful in this because jasper is a green stone. And if you go back to Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, when John saw him who sat on the throne, it said he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald. Green speaks of the richness of life. We're at the beginning of spring when I'm recording this, and wow, I look out into the woods back behind my house, and everything's bursting with green, and the green grass requires being cut every two weeks while we haven't had to do that all winter long because it speaks of life, richness of life. And I believe the fact that the wall around the bride being 216 feet high and appearing like a jasper stone is an indication of the richness of eternal life, the protection and the preservation that will get us from this world to the next and keep us forever. Read Psalm 121, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord will preserve you from all evil. All right, I come to the last point. It's an important point. And there's no requirement of the sun or the moon in that city because the glory of God lightens the city. And the lamb is the light thereof, the Bible says. So if the bride is the city and the city is the bride and the city is lit up with the glory of God, when you and I are glorified as eternal saints, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. And I believe the covering, the clothing that Adam and Eve had in the perfection of the Garden of Eden will be restored to us. The reason they did not know they were naked prior to falling was they were made in the image of God. And Psalm 104 says God clothes himself with light as with a garment. It's an emanation of Shekinah glory from him. The same will be true concerning the bride. We will shine with such spectacular glory well, it can't be described now because God dwells in a light that no man has entered into and no man has seen.
The intensity of it is beyond description. And the intensity of what God is taking the bride, the lamb's wife to, is really beyond description as well. So that's a summary of some of the main points of what it is to be the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, don't forget, I've got another podcast called Revealing the True Light, and it's all about comparison of different religions, and I urge you to check it out also. And I want to mention to you that if you're listening to this on an audio podcast, we also post all of our podcasts as video on youtube.com slash Mike Shreve Ministries. And if you want to find out more about who you are in Christ, be sure to get my book, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shreve, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given His people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.